Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's episode is my producer, Sari Suffer. This feels like part two of my Jennifer Palmieri <laughs> music education class. True. <laughs> because this week, our guest is Brandi Carlisle. She's a Grammy award-winning Americana artist, as well as producer and a writer. Yeah, and I was just so excited to prepare for this interview. I read her new memoir, Broken Horses, which became a number one New York Times bestseller the first week it was out. And I always knew how important she was as a voice for strong women in a really tough misogynistic industry where, you know, country music, the songs are about trucks, beer, and women in tight blue jeans. But I hadn't really appreciated sort of the manner in which she built that confidence until I read her biography. Yeah, she definitely didn't have it easy growing up, but maybe that's like where her grit comes from. Yeah, it seems to. And Mm -hmm. I want to ask her about, I mean, she has a, a remarkable record of having stood up at a young age to really powerful men in the industry who she thought were trying to control her. You know, what it was like being a queer woman in a male-dominant industry and how she's learned to find her identity as a mom through all of that. Can you also try to explain what Americana music is for those of us who still don't understand? (laughs) I will probably let Brandy do it. So let's get to that. So I want to introduce number one New York Times bestselling author, Grammy winner, and the woman who like just seemed to have pioneered the audiobook. <laughs> just like, I mean, Broken Horses in and of itself is a phenomenon, but I feel like you had a moment where you're like, oh wait, there's an audiobook. Let me crush that beyond all measure and <laughs> add like something like 30 songs, things that you've never released publicly before um, on that. But congratulations on like the book success too. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be really fun to talk to you. You know, another thing that I wanted to bring up before we get deep into the book is just how great the photos are. I was really drawn to the photos of your mother in particular. Really? Yeah, she has so much dignity in every photo. Mm-hmm. Her hair is perfectly done. It's huge. She's got her makeup on, mm-hmm. clothes that I know from your book that she probably made herself. And there's just like a lot of pride and dignity. Does that make sense to you? Does that translate to you? Did you, did you channel some of that from your mom? Not only does it make sense, but I'm so glad that you see that. You know, nobody has noticed that yet. And I I notice it too. And you're right. Her hair was always enormous and she was really careful about selecting what she wore and just very conscientious of the way that she was presenting herself. And you're right. Dignity is the word that I would use too, especially given that she was battling such intense depression and had lost her father so young and that we were, you know, living so far below the poverty line. I see it too. And knowing how anxious she was and able to pull it together to perform like that, very much like her father and very much like her father's mother. Something I really understand. So yeah, thanks for noticing. You know, there's so much in your music that one of the things I love about it is how it all seems to be striving for something, except for one song where you seem very certain, very satisfied, sort of has some relief and joy. And for me, that's the mother of Angeline. Yeah. She is quiet, Lord. She doesn't look like me. She made me love the morning. She's a holiday 
The New York streets are as busy as they always used to be. But I am the mother of Evangeline. Like one of the things that you wrote about in the book, when Evangeline was born, your wife was one that was pregnant with her. She was the one going undergoing pregnancy. And you're going to birthing classes and being sort of forced into the kind of role of a dad and felt like you had been nesting, but nobody told you that, that mm -hmm. you were a mother, but no one told you that. And how, you know, gay domesticity is still like not a very well-worn path. Mm -hmm. And we have to have these stories that show us how it can be. You know, when you say no one told me that, I mean, more specifically, like our culture didn't tell me that. Right. You know, that I was a mother, that those kinds of feelings and emotions and I actually even hormones and physical reactions were not just allowed to me, but probably taking place. I had to decide not to carry Evangeline just based on life and jobs and logistics and the fact that I still needed to use my body to earn an income in a way that I had the luxury of Catherine doing that. But it was even though it was a luxury, it was a difficult decision for me to make, you know, I wanted to stay traveling and I wanted to stay living on a tour bus. And so she did do that. And I think that it manifested itself in the form of like some minor grief initially. And that sort of grew as I realized that I didn't have any representation or mirroring in sort of our culture for what I was going to be going through. And it just got worse yeah. and worse and worse. And I think it was like, it ended with me signing my name under the father template on my child's birth certificate. You have the birth certificate in the book and it's amazing. I mean, I can't believe that in 2021 or I guess whenever, what year was she born and eventually in 2000, what year was that? <laughs> 14. Yeah, it's, it's the way that it is. And it was that way in the birthing classes and the breastfeeding yeah. classes and all the things that we attended together. There was like a spot for the dads and it was a humorous spot where you get called up to the front of the room and you get told to put a diaper on a baby doll and everyone does it backwards and you get told to put on a baby Bjorn and you don't know how to use it and all the moms laugh. Yeah. And it's this kind of heteronormative relief valve for the pressure chamber that is, you know, gestation. So basically it was hard for me and it kind of kept being hard right after she was born. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know how, I'm not good at holding babies. I wasn't the birth mother. I wasn't breastfeeding her. And so she didn't ever want to come to me. And I had just come through the trauma of having a wedding and getting married with the Defensive Marriage Act still in place. Right. And struggling through having a wife that couldn't immigrate to the country that I lived in because I couldn't vouch for her as a spouse to get her a green card. So it was like kind of one difficult soiree into domesticity into the next. And I think a lot of that is in that lyric for the song, The Mother, in the way that I was able to reconcile it. And now I just think it's so important for me to keep my family and my situation visible so that, you know, other moms, dads, and people of all different genders and persuasions can see what we went through and go, okay, well, I can take a couple little pieces of this and apply it to my life. And I'm a little bit less alone today, you know. Was there a moment in particular where you finally felt like a mother, that you were the mother of Evangeline? Or was that a the mantra that you had to keep telling yourself? The latter part of that question. It's like, I basically don't write songs once I've got something figured out. I write the songs and that helps me, you know. And so like that mantra 
repeating that on stage night after night in front of life affirming and accepting audiences who laugh and clap and give me the support that I was looking for has helped me. And then of course, Evangeline has helped me by being obsessed with me and me being obsessed with her. So we have our relationship now, but it's so much different than anyone ever told me it would be. So you're describing about motherhood. It seems like it's sort of an emergence then too. And you talked about that, you know, you said that in the book, you said that people asked you, what was your coming out story? And you was like, you know, maybe we should talk more about our emergence story. You know, not like Melissa Etheridge who had a coming out story. Mm-hmm. Or Ellen, I know that when you saw that happen, that was a moment for you. But you seem... Even as you're emerging, you seem like you're very certain at a really young age that you were gay, that you wanted to be an artist, that you were going to be an artist. And it was like unapologetic Mm -hmm. ambition. Sure. And thanks to those gals. That's why. Because you saw that? Because I saw that. I wouldn't have been out of the closet at 15 years old if it wasn't for those women and for the fact they did it for me so that I could have an emergence instead of a big, traumatic, global rejection. Right. And I remember being grateful then, and I am just unspeakably grateful now for it. But yeah, you're right. I did. I was able to come out really young and understand a little bit more about who I was. And it didn't take me falling in love or having a relationship or breaking someone's heart or winding up in some situation where I'm figuring this out in real time. I just saw that and I went, oh, you know what? I'm actually that. I know I don't have a girlfriend or know any other gay people, but because I can see them and they're on TV I know that's a thing for me and saved me a lot of heartache and a lot of trouble. It struck me that you were like very focused, very ambitious and didn't have the same kind of fear of it that I think some women do where we're afraid to express it either because women aren't supposed to do that or because we're concerned that we won't actually get what we want. Yeah. This is my deal. I'm projecting. <laughs> like that was my deal. Mm-hmm. I felt like I couldn't express ambition because I wasn't going to succeed. And then you're embarrassed, right? Then you're humiliated. Who does she think she is mm-hmm. to express this kind of ambition? But you seem to like never have this fear. No, it's true. No, it's something different, Brandy. Like you're something different. You know, let me quote your own words from your own book here. Okay. Um, I was always too loud, too pitchy, too affected too emotional or just out of bounds. And then talking about, you know, I think this is one time in particular with working with Rick Rubin, who, for those who don't know, is like a super famous record producer, just like one of the all-time record producers. And you had a falling out at the end. He said, predictably, I fell out with Rick again at the end of it. My fortitude knew no power differential. My dad had taught me so well to stand up for myself that I would defend my music at all costs. Being wrong didn't deter me one bit. I was fighting for the right to blaze my own trail and standing up to men I loved and respected was honestly par for the course. I've apologized a lot and been apologized to, but I've never kept my mouth shut and then wish I hadn't. That ability, where does it come from? Yeah, I think sometimes I have to dig deep and credit my queerness for things because it's hard because I think a lot of us look at our queerness is kind of marginalizing us in a lot of different ways, but it's also like a little bit of a beautiful advantage in some ways. And to me, I have seen men, I think from a a different perspective than a lot of women have seen them. And that's not to say any women are wrong about the way that they're looking at men in the way that we're marginalized by men either, but it just doesn't come as naturally to me to accept certain things, especially around volume 
loudness, presence, you know, having a dominating presence, you get like nipped at, like sheepdogged, you know, and kind of put back in place. And even really great men, smart, liberal men, they don't see the look on their face as they recoil to a woman having a loud voice or speaking out of turn. And we see it, you know, but I was raised really ruggedly and really queer and my brother couldn't stand up for himself and it was my job and I in fact would get in trouble from my father if I didn't do it and I guess I don't know why but I don't think my dad ever really put me in a a role in that way that was anything other than strange so I've just grown up with an extra mechanism and a broken mechanism that's the way I like to look at it yeah oh interesting um But the ways that I interacted with those producers, whether I was right or wrong, was kind of astounding to me, even looking back on it. But it's just what felt natural to me at the time. Seems like you've always felt sort of apart all the time. So why am I going to relent to what this guy wants to do when never in my life has that really like worked for me? Sure. Especially if what he wants me to do is something that doesn't honor my gender like sing quietly or stand differently or not play an instrument that women don't typically play or a play guitar in a certain way, a certain aggressiveness, which causes men, I think, to recoil in ways that they're not aware of. And I wanted to point it out a lot. They're not aware of it, really. And sometimes the most progressive guys are the biggest offenders because they're so sure that they're not sexist. So, so true. Oh, my God. I've never heard it said so well. Like that just makes them super blind to it. And triggered when they get called on it because like they don't see themselves that way. I was having a conversation recently with another prominent woman in entertainment, really mm-hmm. amazing, a mentor of mine that I look to for feminism and kind of understanding of gender and how to kind of walk through the world. And it's crazy because I also think too, because of her generation, that even she reacts to these kinds of things in a strange way. Like I was talking about being on boards and committees and I was talking about inspiring women that come in. Oh my gosh, I'm telling her, these women, they come into these boards, these committees, and they advocate for themselves in ways that we see men advocate for themselves, but we never see women do it because we're taught culturally that we're not allowed to advocate for ourselves. If we Mm -hmm. have a voice, we better use it to advocate for someone else or for an agenda that's we're adjacent to, but not our own. Like there's something selfish or innately, you know, flawed about us doing that. And even she goes, oh, yikes. (laughs) And I go, what do you mean? Yikes. And she's like, well, I mean, if you're going to advocate, why advocate for yourself? There's so many things or so many causes or so. And I was like, well, because that's the only way we're ever going to platform ourselves in leadership and the men do. So if we don't, we're going to get left behind. We're going to stay here. Yeah. Like one of the things that you do in the book where you go through the litany of the women who were big in country music in the 90s, Mm. Shania, Faith, Reba, you know, there's like 30 names. I know. And I thought music was really changing. And then it just, it sort of stopped. We got to the point now with country music, you know, where the songs are all about guys with pickup trucks, women in jeans in the pickup trucks. That's the only reason they're there and beer and they're all written and sung by guys named luke yeah <laughs> no offense luke's keep on keeping on luke's no i guess there's so many luke's <laughs> what the fuck there's so many luke's it's not like, 
it's very true. And then you cut to like these, this chapter that you mentioned where I've listed maybe 40, maybe 50 names of female country stars in the nineties that just sort of dominated the zeitgeist and created all this mirroring for me as a young girl, Mm -hmm. only allowed to listen to country music, which is a whole other conversation because there are huge swaths of rural America where that's the music. That's not country music. That's music. Yeah. And that's what was wholesome enough aligned enough with my parents' political psyche to where Mm -hmm. that was what was accessible to me at the time. And now if that were my era right now, the things I would be learning about myself are unconscionable. And everyone can agree that this sort of objectified, ornamental version of the female existence that we're learning in the country songs from the Lukes is not anything anyone wants. Even Luke doesn't want that for his daughter, whoever the Luke is, you know, and that's, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, that's not serving anyone anymore. She was a kid, a blue jean, baby, firing her eyes at like when we were recording the High Woman record, I think it was Marin Morris had a number one on country radio. When the bones are good, the rest don't matter. And she was the first woman to have a number one on country radio in two years. Oh my God. Two years. And that's, those are determined weekly. So think about how many weeks there are in two years yeah. of men. Yeah. Just constantly. Without one of those being a woman until Marin finally got that one under her belt for us during that time. And I just think to myself, this genre needs attention. This genre needs attention. And it didn't used to be like that. No, it didn't used to be like that. No. Right? Mm -mm. And also those women that I mentioned, they're still kicking ass, making killer records, but they're being pushed out of the kind of country music limelight too because of their age and the fact that they're women. Yep, age is a whole separate conversation I wish we could have, but unfortunately we need to take a quick break to pay some bills. After I want to continue talking music, specifically Americana music, and try to figure out exactly what the genre represents because I have a theory. That's after the break with Brandy Carlisle on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Brandy Carlisle, singer, songwriter, and producer. Before we get into your new music, let's go back in time a bit. Tell us about your first performance, because it sounds like that's when you knew this is what you're meant to do. Well, after my mom's dad died of ALS, he wanted her to sing, and she was always too shy, but she definitely had a carpe diem moment when her dad passed away and wanted to try and do what what he wanted her to do. And so... She went and auditioned at this place in Northwest Grand Ole Opry. And at her audition, a little girl came out before her and sang Coat of Many Colors. And my mind was totally blown because I thought maybe I was going to want to be a singer when I grew up. But I didn't realize that it was something I didn't have to wait for, that I could just Mm -hmm. be a singer now. And so my mom got in. And then a couple of weeks later, I auditioned too, just like the little girl did. I got into the show and I chose a song called... Tennessee Flat Top Box. It's a great song. It's so good. Yeah, that was my first song. And I walked out on stage. And when I heard the audience for the first time, I was just done with any other life ever. And it never stopped. I didn't go 
more than a couple of weeks without performing on stage in front of people until now. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, and everything I've ever done in terms of whether it's a writing a song or learning an instrument has just been a way to sort of support my addiction, which is to be on stage in front of people, no matter what that means. Right. Like all of my work is about supporting my tour habit. You know, it was was like sort of liberation for me after Hillary lost. And I was like, okay, doing everything differently. And I like stopped working traditional jobs that I had done before. I wrote a book and then I like built my life around bands I wanted to see. You know, I like a lot of different kinds of music. I'm drawn to Americana, I think, because it's always, it is sort of misfitty and striving to do more. Yeah. But I was sort of surprised to wake up one day and be told that the music I loved was Americana. I was like, oh, I just thought it was rock music. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's the hallmark of an Americana fan or an Americana artist is that like, you know, I thought Bob Dylan was country and Johnny Cash was rock and roll. So I'm an Americana because I didn't understand the concept. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was rock music with really good lyrics. Often it's made in Nashville, sometimes it's not. But, yeah. you know, I was like, well, if early Jackson Brown or Tom Petty, like, I guess that that would be Americana today, I think. But what does yeah. it mean to you? Because you had a great way to describe, like, why you feel like we're really proud to be an Americana artist. Well, I think we're really, like, protective of our lanes nowadays in a kind of a polarized sense or whatever, you know. And mm-hmm. everywhere, everywhere. Everywhere. God. <laughs> I think I just was happy to be in any lane or be allowed to come to any party or any dance. And when I saw Americana taking steps to honor and platform people of color, the artists that created our genre. Eventually all of this comes back to R&B, right? Even further than that, it comes from the destination, the origin of the instruments that we use. You know, it's like, it's so important I want this reconciliation to happen around it. And I'm not trying to politicize the genre, but it's so important that we recognize how people of color have been totally shut out of the genre that they invented and then didn't profit from for all these years and watched us in turn profit from it by calling it other things. You know, this is why I mean, like I said, it feels like it's striving. It's like, it's very American in that way, imperfect and trying to get better. Oh my God, you're so right. I feel like you should come on the Americana board with us and write our mission statement because that sounds really beautiful what you just said. <laughs> I'm glad you call yourself you. an Americana fan. I call myself an Americana artist. I feel like it's important and it's a place I want to be in this at this point right now in my life. Maybe I won't always be an Americana artist, but I, I'm pretty proud to call myself one right now. Yeah, I sort of bucked against it because I was like, it seems like it was also convenient. It was like, we don't want that crowd, the Americana crowd, right? The people that had the very thoughtful lyrics, that lyrics that sort of question things in country music. Like it was like, y'all are a little too political to be considered country. So let's have this carve out in Nashville for these misfits to be Americana. Mm-hmm. You know, reading your book just made me view it, just like think about it more. Like it is kind of that striving, that like trying to be better, trying to be more perfect. You know, one thing about me, I am a huge Jason Isbell fan. We were vampires and death was a joke. Okay, that's so good to know. Yeah. That's my boy. Yeah. You know, you write about the fall of 2018, the Americana Awards, right? And, you know, first of all, Tyler Childers, he wins the Emerging Artist Award, the Young mm-hmm. Award. Keep your nose on the grindstone and out of the pills. And then Jason, who I know we both adore, wins all of the awards for album. And then Mr. Prine, as you refer to him, John Prine, uh, the godfather of everything, is the artist of the year. Standing by peaceful waters. 
And you you wrote that, and it just, you know, this is the passage I keep going back to. You said there was an energetic shift in the room, and it wasn't just you that felt that. There was, yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't just from the women, I bet it was from the men, too. It was. Because it, maybe it needed to be presented to us that starkly, that the people who decided these wards were saying the past, present, and future of Americana music is meant. Yeah. It was like, you're right, the past, present, and future that night went to white men. White guys, yeah, right. But really amazing, profoundly liberal, forward-thinking, and inclusive ones. And also yeah. ones that had earned, that. this is really important, that had earned those specific awards. Yeah. Tyler Childers was absolutely the best new artist that night, and he's shown it in subsequent years. John yeah. Prime was absolutely the artist of the year, and Jason Isbell was absolutely, had written the best song and album during that moment. And so it was complicated. What does that mean? Should there be more opportunities for women within that space? Yes. Yeah. And also the contrast that I feel like we should mention that's really interesting is that the Lifetime Achievement Award went to Irma Thomas that night. Buddy guy. Gates of heaven must be open. The Impact Award and Legacy Award went to Katie Lang. They platformed an all-women-run LGBTQ-focused record label that signed and championed gay people in the 80s and 90s. So every non-voted-on award went to a marginalized person. Every voted-on award went to white men, deserved white men. So I think Americana went, I don't want to speak for them or the board or whoever they are. Yeah. I don't even know, you know, who makes these decisions, but I think they just took a deep breath and went, okay, we can get better. What can we do? There's nobody not deserving what they have here. Right. But I think there can be more opportunities and more space for these kinds of of people and these kinds of music makers, because a lot of women that were nominated, a lot of people of color were nominated. And so something happened, an energetic shift. And ever since then, it's just been a more conscientious community in that way. I don't think anybody would do that night over in the same way if they could. But again, I, I just have to say that I feel just as conflicted now as I do then, because I do those are the people I would have voted for, too. They you know? are. I know. I mean, the Nashville sound. And by the way, I forgive you. Like in that, because you know, I worked for Hillary and it was like those two albums. They just like saved me. You know, it's not a small thing. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So I know you identify more as an Americana artist, but the other type of music that you often get boxed into or labeled is country. What are your feelings on that? It's the same decision I had to make as a Jesus freak. You know, do I need the word Christian yeah. or is it not mean the thing I need it to mean anymore? And with country, when you say you don't need that word, look, I'm just going to be really clear with you. What you're also saying is I don't need the money that comes along with that word either. And it's hardly ever true for an artist. You always need a little extra money. You know, what's nice about being comfortable and having been broke as a joke and totally dirt poor is that you're just never afraid of being dirt poor again. You know what it feels like. And actually I can honestly say as a person who hates class division and feels that poverty is a condition imposed upon us usually by our culture and situation around us. I don't think that people make the choice to be in poverty. 
Right. I can say that I'm not happier with money than I was without money. There you go. There's something for people to learn from. And that's a great time to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Brandi Carlisle to talk about her new album and how it helped her cope through the pandemic here on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Grammy Award winner Brandi Carlisle and now best-selling author of her memoir, Broken Horses, which came out just two months ago. Brandy, I want to start with one particular story that you wrote about in your book that I felt sort of encapsulated, maybe shedding some things that were holding you back and pushing yourself to the next level. And that was the story of writing your song, The Joke, which was released in 2018 and you performed at the Grammys the following year. You're feeling nervous, aren't you, boy? So Dave Cobb, who's like the big Americana producer, does John Prine, Jason Isbell, like all of the Americana royalty and produced your most recent album to date, by the way, I forgive you. And he had there's this amazing story in the book about how you broke the joke and what Dave said to you when you thought you were at the end of recording the album. And I'm just going to read from the book. Dave says... Dude, you know what this album is missing? He blurted out. A song like The Story. You should write something like The Story because nothing you've done has been better than that. All of these lines across my face Tell you the story And then he goes on to say, especially vocally, you haven't had a vocal moment as good as The Story since The Story. the story which was like your big breakout song and it's a phenomenal song but it came out in 2007 so this is 10 years later yeah (laughs) it's just like (laughs) yeah it was horrible but there was a lot of purity in it because he didn't seem to know what he was saying I mean we have egos you know it's like we don't want to be told that for 10 years we haven't done anything as good as we did one time one time You know, because you said that Kath asked you, your wife asked you, if you're honest with yourself, though, do you have a vocal moment as good as a story? And you said, I knew I didn't. I'd shut that place of recklessness down in me. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to see it, you had to buy a ticket, come to a show. I wasn't going to make something that vulnerable, permanent ever again. Mm-hmm. And then you wrote the joke in a half hour and had yeah. like the greatest, one of the greatest Grammy moments ever in that performance. Did you shed something at that moment? Like, was it freeing? Did it take you to a next level or just a great song? No, it did. It was freeing. It did take me to the next level. I remember being allowed to stay up late at night for the Grammys and the CMAs and the ACMs and all these moments where these divas, country divas and other divas would get out on stage and sing. Like, I wanted to see like, oh my God, can Whitney hit that note? You know, I will always love you. Like, is Katie Lang going to be able to hold out the note in Western Stars as much as she does on the album? Mm. And these were like these power divas, you know, because every song has a moment, a make or break moment built into it. And that's actually not the healthiest way to look at vocal performance, but it is the way I look at it. As make or break moments? Yeah. So like my worst nightmare is that there's an audience full of me's sitting out there one night waiting to see Mm. if I can hit notes that, you know, if I can cash checks that I've written about certain songs, certain things, moments in songs. So 
that thing in the joke very much felt that way to me because that last moment is the very, very top of the ceiling of what I can do vocally. And sometimes I can do it. Sometimes I can do it. So you never know. You can do it five times in a row at rehearsal. It's great every time. And the show happens and you don't get there. And I just love that the audience is very much there for you in that moment too. And it just, I just feel like Randy just really captured how not all women, not all people in America, but how a lot of us in America were feeling. And you're looking tired, but you don't look scared. You're looking tired, but you don't look scared. Hell to the yeah. That's exactly just that little, is that a couplet? <laughs> They're not even. <laughs> just that two phrases. I was like, that's how women, that's how we feel right now. Right. We're yeah. tired, but we are not scared. Yeah. And there's a difference. It's yeah. subtle. It's subtle, yeah. but other women can see it. Yeah. You know, I, you have a mantra at the end of the book about, I will learn to accept the continuum. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you had a lot of pressure on yourself, put a lot of pressure on yourself. After you won the Grammy for, by the way, I forgive you. Yeah. I mean, I've had this sense before, like a panic, like it's all going to disappear. You wrote that your fear about going back to the end of the line. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you'll have those big moments. But what I like is a sense of pacing yourself. We don't have a timestamp, an expiration date on our heads. Timestamp. Yeah, exactly. How do you feel about this continuum now? I mean, that I feel like is just more about that I'm just so uncomfortable not knowing what's going to happen. I've always been like that. And I don't write about things once I figure them out. I write about things when I need to. So like, yeah, you don't know what the story is until you write write it. I mean, I wrote, by the way, I forgive you because I don't know how to forgive you. I wrote, I am the mother of Evangeline because I don't know sometimes that I am the mother of Evangeline. And I wrote, I will become comfortable with the continuum because I am not yet comfortable with the continuum. But it's your new mantra. These are my mantras. And this is me giving myself, you know, emotional stitches in my writing. And I'm just so lucky I have a way to work out my, I'm not going to overuse the word anxiety, but whatever that is, my discomfort. When so many people don't, and I've really noticed that in this last year, how it's been so hard for people to not know what's going to happen day in, day out, how uncertain this time has been for all of us. And so much of us find so much purpose in our work, yeah, not being able to do it. Mothers that don't work find all this purpose and mothering and now, but they're also homeschooling and which is totally new and then what to make of the teachers and everything they're going through to try to hold us together. So much unrest. And here I am with this outlet and I just wish it on everyone. I do. Yeah. I wish everyone had it. But we're grateful that you use it in the way that you do because it really does help and inspire a lot of people. When you say the album helped you during the campaign, that means a lot to me. It makes me feel like, hey, I'm not just helping myself, which sometimes I feel like I am, you know? Particularly, I think that we kind of feel the same thing at the same time, right? That's what the zeitgeist is all about. Mm -hmm. You're looking tired, but you're not looking scared. And it's like, I'm just, I'm just not, you know, there's things that I'm scared of, you know, doing or accomplishing, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to be scared of another person. I'm not going to be scared of what you say to me. You know, that's kind of what that time is like. When do we get this album, Brandy? What's next? Well, it's done. And I'm supposed to have a discussion today, actually, about changing the date of when we're going to put it out. So it might come sooner than you think. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for people to hear it. It's so dramatic and over the top. Oh, my God. I'm so excited for dramatic and over the top. <laughs> just vocally. It's just like I'm singing my ass off and I love it. I can't wait to get out on the road and do it again. <laughs> and when do you get out on the road? When do we get to see you on the road? 
Well, my first gigs back are in Montana. <gasps> what? Yeah, July 1st and 2nd. Well, Brandy Carlisle, this has been fantastic. And I'll see you in early July in Missoula. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's get out there on the river and do some fly fishing. Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, my God. She's so amazing. So cool. So my big takeaway for her that I think people can learn from is this notion of you know, and she wrote about this in her book, disagreeing with men. And she said she was never worried about the power differential. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's funny. Normally we tell women don't apologize, right? Which I'm so bad at. (laughs) I say I'm sorry before I say anything. But Brandy, you know, she writes about this. She had to go back and apologize when she thought she was wrong. And so this is just like a really good model for women. It's like, believe in yourself. Ask for forgiveness, not permission. Ask for forgiveness, (laughs) not permission. Yeah, yeah. When she was describing it, too, just the way she was interacting with men, that was one part that really resonated with me, where she said, like, most people, most women get really reactive when they see men recoil at their loudness. Like, you can see their physical reaction when a woman is loud, when a woman is confident, when a woman is self-assured. And she just learned to not be affected by that. And I think that's a really great takeaway, too. If you can learn to recognize that that is a weakness in the men and not bad that you are stepping up. I think that's something to really work with. She came from such a tough background, but it mm-hmm. seems like the strength that it gives her is to know, you know, she says she's comfortable now, right? That's how she describes her financial circumstances. Yeah. But she's not happier. Maybe, you know, part of her being able to stand up to, you know, these like really powerful record producers, her sense of confidence, as well as her desperate need to protect her own artistry you know, comes from knowing that she can almost survive. Yeah. And then the other part that I found really resonated was with the 2018 Americana Awards. Yeah. She was talking about how you brought this up, the past, present and future were men. But she was like, but then all of the non-voted on awards were given to women and people of color. So maybe it's about like expanding opportunities rather than just trying to fit people into existing. Well, I think what she was saying was like, don't blame the Americana Association. I think they picked the diverse people. It was like the membership that voted to default to the men. Right. But it was sort of, you know, for a lot of industries, a lot of people, we had that moment where it just is sort of revealed to you. Like, oh my God, what have we done? We, you know, we are these people that decides who these awards go to. And we decided to give it the past, present and future to three white men. Right. And I think like those three people were able to like commodify their music because they were white men. Like that's most easily commodified. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Well, I mean, I look at you use the word commodify. I, I think of it as recognizing, you know, like okay. in, in, in politics, for example, Beto O'Rourke, Pete Buttigieg, their careers took off in a manner in which women with the same background as them would never have happened. So it's like we recognize the men right away. We recognize the earnest, young, yet unproven, but a lot of potential, whether that man is in politics or in music, right? Yeah, that's true. So like Tyler Childers, whether it's candidates or hiring or whatever, we look for women to have a proven record. And so, you know, for an artist, for musical, that's like, wow, talk about being caught in a catch-22. Like, that's very difficult to have a proven record when you're not given the chance. But I feel like 
you know, it seems like what that moment at the Americana Awards did was tell people we have to be more deliberate. Right, right, right. And since we talked to Brandy, the Artist of the Year nominations for Americana Awards came out. And this year, she's one of the artists that's nominated, but it's three women and two guys. I will note they are all white. I remember there was a conversation like a few years ago about not separating male and female artists in both the Grammys. And I think it was also like Oscars too, like combining the two because what's the difference? Yep. But then this made me think like, if we don't separate them, are white men going to win all those awards anyway? And then we're not creating space for women to win those awards. You know, like, I think the big tension, Sari, is knowing when to like, cut that off. You know, all this stuff is a big balancing act, but I think it is a good question because at some level, if you do separate by gender, you're pitting the men against each other and you're pitting the women against each other. Mm-hmm. For women, that seems to like double down on, you know, that tension that's been inherent in like art for all time. Yeah. And also obviously like, it's not like it starts at the award ceremony. It starts way before that. Women yeah. and people of color are not getting the opportunities to even get to the point where they're nominated. So, yeah. You know what is so important is that Brandy Carlisle is now also a record producer, right? Yeah. Like she's like the Rick Rubin. Right. We always say uh, the gatekeepers, that's still the issue. Yeah. She's producing a lot of women artists that might not get the attention they would have if somebody with Brandy's backing didn't um, help them. And, you know, also probably able to help them find their voice in a way that might not otherwise happen. But like, I feel like women producing music Mm -hmm. is a big deal. Yep. All right. All right. Good deal, sister. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Brandy Carlisle for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 